0: In the holy name of Jesus, amen. Not long ago, there was a judge in Putnam County, Florida, who became notorious for a bizarre sentence that he would deliver to anyone found guilty of misdemeanor theft. He sentenced them to return to the scene of the crime, and for two hours they had to walk around holding a sign that said, I stole from this store. It's really not a novel penalty, in fact, Judge Miller borrowed the idea from a newspaper article he'd read, but it illustrates, particularly well, how shame works. On the one hand, as with any penalty, deterrence is a goal. One of the public defenders in Putnam County, perhaps exaggerating a bit, was reported as saying. By far, the thing defendants hate the most is that sign. I think people would rather crawl on their stomachs across a minefield. But Judge Miller was after more than just deterrence. He also wanted reform. What better place to come to grips with what you've done than the scene of your crime? Who better to evoke contrition than those whom you've wronged? And what better means to coerce reform than shame? It really is the best that justice can hope for. Shame can work to prevent us from becoming criminals, and it can coerce a criminal to shape up. And in some ways, our Gospel lessons today seems like it's a setup for exactly this kind of justice. The last time we heard from Peter, he was in the court of the high priest denying for the third time that he even knew Jesus while the rooster crowed. He had been warming himself beside a charcoal fire while the high priest questioned Jesus. And then what Jesus had predicted came true. Peter had promised that he would lay down his life for Jesus. And Jesus replied, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. There's no greater crime imaginable. And Peter was guilty. And then he went silent as his world began to fall apart. When Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that the tomb was empty... Peter ran to the tomb and went straight in. He saw the cloths lying there, but he didn't have anything to say. And I'm not really sure that a resurrected Jesus was what Peter was looking for. A resurrected Jesus would bring Peter face to face with his shame. Last week, Jesus appeared to the disciples twice behind a locked door, but there's no mention of Peter's reaction. His world was still in shambles. And so today we find ourselves at the Sea of Tiberias, and Peter looks lost. I'm going fishing, he says. Perhaps the only thing left for him is to return to his life as before, to forget the whole thing had ever happened. To pretend that he'd never sworn his life to Jesus in the first place. To pretend that he hadn't spent the last several years thinking he could be Peter, the rock, instead of regular old Simon bar Jonah. To pretend that he hadn't been rebuked by Jesus when he drew his sword in the garden to do the honorable thing and prevent the shame of the cross. To pretend that he hadn't trembled with fear in the court of the high priest while he renounced Jesus to save his own skin. Perhaps the only thing left for him is to pretend like the whole thing never happened. I'm going fishing, he says. Perhaps he can avoid his shame. But then Jesus shows up, and the beloved disciple recognizes him. It's the Lord, he says. And now there's no avoiding it. Peter flings himself into the sea, not unlike his namesake, the prophet Jonah, who was flung into the sea when he tried to run away from God. Peter somehow manages the hundred yards to shore and finds himself face to face, with everything that would make him most ashamed. Justice will be served. He's been returned to the scene of the crime. There's a charcoal fire, just like the night he disowned Jesus. And there's Jesus, whose long-suffering devotion to Peter, Peter never deserved. And painfully echoing Peter's denial there's the threefold question from Jesus. Do you love me? Perhaps Peter would rather have crawled on his stomach across a minefield than return to the scene of his crime. But Jesus returns Peter face to face with his shame for different reasons than Judge Miller in Putnam County. Jesus has something better to offer Than justice. Jesus offers mercy. But his mercy isn't of a kind that just waves a hand. It's of a kind that endured the cross in order to bring glory from shame. It's of a kind that tests and proves and refines and even causes grief in order to draw out love, in order to turn glory from shame. It's a mercy that brings us face to face with our shame, not to put us to shame, but in order that the mercy of Jesus might consume our shame. Peter himself tells us what this is like at the beginning of his first epistle. He says this, According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. It isn't a dodge, a way to avoid your shame. And it isn't justice, which at best can hold your feet over the fire. It's a life found on the cross, which in its foolishness, has turned shame into glory. And this is why it's good to come to church, especially when you're ashamed. And this is why it's good to come to confession, especially for those sins that you'd rather crawl on your stomach across a minefield than remember. This is why you're forgiven. Because, like Peter, when Jesus brings you face to face with your shame, in him you see it nailed to the cross. He draws you out of the water. He breaks bread and feeds you. And without a hint of coercion, he invites you to follow him. In the holy name of Jesus, amen. Amen.